Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 23, verses 12 and following. How, how do we begin to discern true service to the Lord, true ministry to the Lord? Ministry is just the word uh, service. How do we begin to discern what's true ministry to the Lord versus what's fleshly, what's carnal, what's not necessarily spiritual in that context? How do we do that? There's all kinds of uh, things that we can say about that. There's all kinds of examples we can give. And I think what we're going to see in this passage today is a group of uh, individuals, men, who took an oath and were absolutely committed to God, but dead wrong, dead wrong, right? How do we, in our lives, begin to discern when God's leading, when God's directing, how are we listening? How are we making sure that we follow? What is it that we can look at and say, okay, this is from God. Obviously, this is not. I think that's obviously an important distinction all of us need to be aware of. All of us have a walk with the Lord. All of us, Lord willing, today have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, we're called into a deeper walk. We're called to follow him. We're called to be disciples, willing learners. And so all of life begins to be an environment that God orchestrates on our behalf in order to teach us, to grow us, because he has eternity in mind. How do you begin to discern what's of God, what's not? What's of the Lord? What's of me? I think it's interesting because zealousness, we can use the word passion, Right? Passion, zealousness for God does not necessarily equal walking by biblical faith. Just because somebody's passionate about something, just because they're zealous for something, that doesn't necessarily mean that's from God. We've got to be careful. We seem to, as a culture, as a, as a people in America, uh, kind of almost idolize worship, passion. We excuse all kinds of unbiblical things because of passion. I think we got to get into the Word of God and find out what does the Word of God say about that. Passion's important. I think if you believe God, there's a passion that comes out of that wellspring of belief. And we've got to watch uh, what is it that God's doing? What is it that the Lord says? And we've got to learn to, to really discern what's from the Lord and what's not. Look at verse, uh, verses 12 and following, Acts chapter 23. First of all, a religious oath. A religious oath. Three things. A religious oath, a divine report, and a timely rescue. All within the context of passion or zealousness for God. And what does that mean? What does that really look like? When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. You hear passion in that? You hear zealousness in that? (laughs) You hear a God mandate? A messianic Messiah complex. God told us to do this. And we're not going to eat or drink until we kill that guy. That pest, as he's called later on. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. Sounds unified to me. There's even unity with this group. Man, they're (laughs) locking arms. Right? We're going to get Paul. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. 
Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Wow, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, these guys are, they've got the law of Moses. They are religious leaders listening to these 40-plus individuals who've taken an oath. And, and just like Ananias, where Paul has already said, you know, you, you whitewash sepulcher, you wall that has nothing to it. I mean, here these people are condoning pure murder for the sake of advancing their ideology. That's what we see. That's what's here. Folks, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. People get convinced that they're supposed to do something. People get convinced that they've been given a mandate by God. People use the word of God and twist it in all kinds of different ways in order to say, that's what we're supposed to do. And we're going to do it. Don't stand in our way if you stand in our way. Sometimes philosophically, sometimes physically, we'll kill you if you get in our way. That's amazing. Is there anything new under the sun? When we talk about people's righteousness and what they think about themselves, and when we talk about poking their righteousness, when when grace comes to bear and grace begins to poke somebody's righteousness, wow, watch out, Jack, because what comes out is certainly not from the Lord. Why are we surprised when religious people are opposed to the gospel of grace. Why, are we t- why do we get taken off guard by that? We do all the time, don't we? We begin to learn something. Maybe you're in the word of God. You're, you're, you're studying a particular passage. Maybe you've gotten involved in a study in some way. And maybe you've got a small group. And God's really teaching you. And boy, the Lord's just doing a work in your life. And you begin to share it with people around you. Have you ever had this happen? And they look at you like you're nuts. Oh, that you, wow, you're taking this religion thing a little far, aren't you? Have you had it happen in your family? It's amazing to watch when God begins to do a work in you, how other people sometimes, unfortunately, respond. That you thought were going to celebrate with you, and they, they really, they don't. But what's really interesting is when people that appear to be very mature in the faith, people who are supposed to be leaders in some way, shape, or form, they've gotten so tied into religious ideology and their own righteousness that when grace comes to bear, oh, they just explode. That's what's happening here. Paul suffered, and we can see this over and over. Why did Paul suffer? You know, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? You look at all the things we've looked at over the the last uh, year and a half, and these three missionary journeys that Paul has been on, and you look at all the different ways that he was attacked and vilified and beaten and accused falsely. For what? Because he said to people, Jesus Christ went to the cross and died so that you could have life everlasting. Wow. Think about that. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, we think about what grace is and what God's done for us, and then we think of this reaction to that. Don't get caught off guard. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Jesus was crucified because he literally revealed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and others. They, they, they were always saying one thing, but they were incapable of accomplishing the standards that they were always imposing on everyone else. And they hated him for it because he, he made a fool out of them. In front of the crowds, they were so concerned about the crowds. They were so concerned about their image. When the Lord began to speak things that were true to them and call them hypocrites and liars and brood of vipers, oh, it poked their righteousness. We tithe our mint and coming. We tithe our garden herbs. We're righteous. And the Lord, the Lord allows the disciples to walk through and take stuff, get the wheat and eat the wheat without washing their hands. Oh, they just couldn't handle that. Or he began to heal people on the Sabbath day. Couldn't handle it. That's work. Don't do that. So they began to plot, how can we kill this guy? See, they have a religious idea. They have a mandate. They have a thought of what it means to follow God and anybody that gets in their way. They're going to try to destroy, even kill. Why is grace such a lightning rod for opposition? Grace is such a lightning rod for opposition. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways we could go with this. Let me give you three thoughts. Grace doesn't allow for self-focus. That's the banner. Grace doesn't allow for self-focus. When we talk about grace... You, you can't talk about grace and, and include yourself in the, in the sentence. It doesn't work. When we talk about grace, we're talking about what God is able to do because he chose to do it. Not because of what we deserve. Not what we can accomplish for God. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with what God has done for us. And as a result, we're taken completely out of the picture. Oh, we don't like that. We love to be at the center. There's no... Self-effort when it comes to grace. There's no self-ability when it comes to grace. There's no self-glory when it comes to grace. Guess what? We're not in control. How about that? (laughs) We don't like, I guarantee you there are people sitting here right now that your flesh is just getting you. Because you want to qualify it. You want to clarify it. You want to say, oh, but, 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 but. No, 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 no. Grace is unequivocal. Grace is unequivocal. Guess what? Lo and behold, God doesn't need us to do his work. He can get it done without us. Oh, we don't like that one. But we were told to make disciples. Yes, we were. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Guess what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, there we go. Guess what? It's grace. I can do all things through Christ. Through Christ who strengthens me. God doesn't need us. God's chosen to be involved with us. Out of the free expression of his will. Praise God. Guess what? That means it's not dependent upon me. That means I don't have to worry about failing. I already am a failure. We're glorious failures for Christ. And we don't like to hear that. We really don't. Because we like, 
We like to line up all our successes. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Oh, we just, oh, it really does go against our flesh. Well, these guys are no different. They've got control issues. Paul is out of control. And they want to place Paul under their control. And how are they going to do that? They've got a plot. We're going to kill him. And they go to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders evidently, obviously, buy in on this. But thank God. God's sovereign. Remember, the Lord came alongside and said, take courage, Paul. I'm with you. Just like you have given a testimony in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify about me in Rome. Done deal. How it was going to take place, wow, that's an interesting moment. I can imagine Paul sitting uh, in this prison in these barracks, having been rescued by these Roman soldiers, wondering, well, the Lord told me that I'm going to go to Rome. So, Lord, how are you going to do that? Because I don't have any control on the issue. I'm under Roman custody. I can't do anything about it. But, you know, that's beauty, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? When when we feel like we're totally out of control, who do we know is still in control? The Lord is. And we can run to him, trust him, because he's sufficient, he's able. Verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to, what, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. This kid got it, didn't he? he boy, he got the message. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Man, this commander, he's he's kind of in the dryer, you know, and it's just churning. He's watched Jerusalem. I mean, he's in charge of of Jerusalem and and keeping the peace. He's got probably 2,000 soldiers under his command. There's already been one absolute eruption, and he had to grab Paul out of it. He thought he was the Egyptian assassin. He hears Paul starting to speak in Greek, and he realizes, what? You're not that guy. He allows Paul to speak to the crowd. The Lord hushes the crowd. Paul gives his testimony. And when the Jewish people, this mob, heard Paul say, God, call me to go to the Gentiles, they erupt again. They're throwing dirt up in the air. I mean, they're just going nuts. And so the commander grabs him, and he's going to whip him, and he's going to beat him, and he's going to find out what in the world are you doing to get these people all upset. That sounds backwards to me, but that's how they did it. Paul says, hey, is it legal for you to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? Bam, wow, let go of this guy. Don't do that, because we could actually be killed for doing this to him. He's been uncondemned. He hasn't even had a trial. The commander still wants to find out what's going on, so he calls the Sanhedrin. He says, hey, you people get together. I'm going to have Paul come down and talk to you because I want to find out what's going on. The Sanhedrin erupts, the Pharisees and Sadducees, all in a, in a tizzy about the resurrection. Paul knows these two sides, and they blow up. And then the commander's scared that Paul's going to get ripped apart by them. So he grabs them again. Now you've got 40-plus guys that are taking an oath, saying, we're, we're absolutely not going to eat or drink anything until we kill this guy. 
This kid comes along, tells the commander, the commander's taking this seriously. His reputation is at stake. His command and, and his control over the situation is fragile, and he knows it. But in the midst of it, isn't it beautiful how God is sovereign? How many times do we doubt the Lord? How many times do we doubt the Lord? You know, the truth of the matter is our instinctual reaction out of the flesh is always to doubt the Lord. We have to get into the word of God so that our minds can be renewed so that we become the other side of things, that we immediately run to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand all this circumstance. You told me I'm going to Rome, but here I am under Roman uh, imprisonment. I don't know how you're going to get me there, but I trust you. I believe you're going to get me there. God protects. He knows exactly what he wants to accomplish. He cannot be thwarted in it. How often do we worry? How often do we worry? I I won't ask you to raise your hand, but does anybody struggle with worry? Worry about the stock market. Worry about, boy, fill in the blank. We worry, we worry, we worry, (laughs) right? That's Praise God for his grace. Praise the Lord that he's in control. Praise the Lord for the word of God. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit in us to teach us and to guide us and to direct us, to change us. How often do we immediately step out of faith and begin to walk by sight? We try to fix or do something rather than running to the Lord. We got a problem, we're going to fix it. What's the plan of action? Rather than immediately running to the Lord. I love what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, the church is the only organization that when they're faced with a problem, immediately stops or should stop all activity in order to pray. I love that. They're the only ones. Because everybody else, when there's a problem, we immediately, what are we going to do? PowerPoint slides abound. Graphs and charts. and Here's what we got to do. Here's the plan. What do we do? We get on our knees and we say, Lord, we know you're sovereign over this. Caught us off guard but didn't catch you off guard. What do you want to do? Give us wisdom in it. I think that's a beautiful truth. Well, verse 22, there's a timely rescue. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, now listen to this. This is awesome, right? Get 200 soldiers. Each of these centurions are over 100 men, 100 soldiers. Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. But that's not all. With 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Oh, man. This is like Paul getting taken by 20 divisions to wherever he's going to go. Can you imagine all the Navy SEALs coming together in order to protect one guy in order to take him about 40 miles? I love it. I mean, I don't know if these guys starved to death or not, but they evidently took one look at this group and they said, Oath over. No more. I mean, isn't that funny how, how sometimes we get so sincere about something, we make oaths about it, and all of a sudden the circumstances change, and we go, oh, well, <laughs> we didn't really mean that. Who knows what these guys went through, but they're seeing 200 soldiers, 
200 spearmen, 70 horsemen, and Paul on horse in the middle of them all at night. And they go, forget about it. Forget about it. Right? Does God have a way of protecting? Can you thwart what God wants to do? I would suggest absolutely not. We get to be a part of what God wants to do. We trust him and we begin to walk with him in the midst of it. Verse 25, the commander writes a letter. In verse 26, he says, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Claudius Lysias is the commander. To the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. (laughs) This is so funny. I'm sorry, I got to laugh because I see this a lot, right? This is a great letter that puts Claudius Lysias, the commander, in the absolute best light possible. See if you catch this, okay? When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Is that how this went? I mean, you talk about politically correct. You talk about turning the truth into a pretzel. I mean, this is amazing, right? What did he do? He saw that the the whole crowd was going crazy. He goes and grabs Paul. He did rescue him. And then he was going to beat the stew out of him to find out what's going on. And then he found out that he was a Roman. But that's not what he tells Felix. Unbelievable. Nothing's new under the sun, folks. Verse 28, wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. More twisting of the pretzel here, right? And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. The truest thing that he said. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So he lets Felix know a little bit of the truth. He puts himself in the best light possible, and he basically says, hey, here's this guy. He's not worthy of death. There's going to be some accusers that bring a charge against him before you, which happens after five days. Verse 31, so the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. That's on their way. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. So the the soldiers leave, safety is kind of brought to bear, but in order to get to the rest, or in order to get to Caesarea safely, the horsemen go with them. Verse 33, when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. The word praetorium means uh, governor's mansion. (laughs) Is that great? I mean, he's under house arrest, but he's in a pretty good place. He's been protected. He's been watched over. God is faithful. The irony in all of this is the Jews had been given the very oracles of God. They've been given the very word of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 2 says, great in every respect. What is it, what is it the benefit to, be, to uh, being Jewish? 
Paul's response is great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, the very word of God. The irony in all of this is Paul is sharing the testimony that he has concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Jews are missing out on this. They're totally missing it. They actually want to kill the Apostle Paul because of his message of the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They should have known about the coming of the Messiah. They should have been looking for the anointed one, the Christ. But instead, they're so wrapped up in their own religion that they're hardened, they're blind, they're deaf spiritually to what was theirs. And God uses those heathen pagans to protect the Apostle Paul in order to take him to Caesarea, ultimately to take him on to Rome to testify about the gospel of God's grace. Paul's turned over to Felix. Felix, don't be mistaken, is a pretty wicked guy. One of the commentaries, the Grace New Testament commentary, states this. In ironic contrast, Tacitus, the Roman historian, accurately asserted that Felix reveled in cruelty and lust. And he literally, the power of a king, he wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. That's a Roman historian saying it about a Roman leader. Furthermore, his tenure brought neither peace nor prosperity. In fact, his brutality helped foment the Jewish war of A.D. 66 through 70. Felix, God makes sure Paul is brought under the authority of this pagan. Uh, It's amazing how sovereign the Lord is, folks. How God is able to accomplish his purposes, how the Lord is able to accomplish what he has said he's going to accomplish. And how often we don't trust him in the midst of it. We worry, we wring our hands as if somehow we could control it anyway. And we can't. Were these men sincere, these 40? That's an easy answer. Yeah. Do you think they they thought they were right? Yeah. How, How do we discern spiritual ministry from carnal or fleshly ministry. We kind of put it in the idea of achieved ministry versus received ministry. That's how we, that's our vernacular. And it's not that achieving things are necessarily wrong. But when we take God out of the equation and we rely upon our way of thinking, our effort, our strength, all those kind of things, then achieving takes on a whole different thing. Right? Let me walk through a few thoughts with you in terms of spiritual versus carnal ministry. What's interesting to me is, and I'm just going to give you three things in terms of the commonality. Commonality. Okay? Somebody can be doing everything they can for God. They can literally be driving themselves into the ground for what they believe is right. And then somebody else in a received ministry context, a spiritual ministry, can be working hard as well. Be worn out. Not burned out, worn out. You can look at these two different ministry types and you can say, well, what, what is it that's, that's similar? Let me give you just three thoughts. There's sincerity. There's sincerity. There's a belief that one is in the right. 
I think these 40 men thought they were in the right, don't you? And don't you think Paul thought that he was in the right? So they both think they're in the right. The question is, how do we discern the difference? I think both groups had a passion. They had put a lot of effort. There was zeal for what they thought was right. And I think that's fascinating because there's no question that that's the case for both Paul and these other 40 men, 40 plus. There was zeal. There was a passion there. I even would go so far as to say that there were biblical principles or mandates that they both thought they were serving a higher power. Clearly, Paul's doing what he's doing because he had a testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus and calling him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. These men are doing what they're doing because they can look at the, look at the Old Testament and go, this guy has nothing to do with us, and we got to kill him. Paul even relates to them. Remember when he's standing before the mob and he says, I was like you, I was zealous as well. I even was so zealous that I was going around making sure these Christians were thrown into prison. Some of them were even killed because of my vote. Folks, I, I think it's pretty interesting because those things don't necessarily constitute what is it that God is doing. We can't necessarily rely on observing whether there's passion, whether there's effort or zeal, whether there's biblical principles or, or mandates to say that that's really not from the Lord. We, we've got people that will use the word of God in all kinds of ways, and unless we're really sharp and unless we're really experienced and unless we're really trained in our minds by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, it becomes very difficult to discern, is this really from the Lord or not? It can be really a fine line because you can have two different groups doing the same exact thing with all the energy and strength and power that they've got, but one's from the Lord and one's not. So let me give you some thoughts. What does it look like when someone's walking by the flesh rather than in the spirit? What does it look like when somebody is serving, ministering in Christ's strength rather than their own? Well, the first thing is there's always legalism versus grace. Always legalism versus grace. Legalism becomes the prevailing mindset. When we're doing things out of our own efforts, our own strength, Legalism becomes the prevailing mindset. And let me just suggest it this way. Pride sets in. Because we're the ones doing it, we become proud. We become proud. What's the alternative? What's true ministry to the Lord, activity for the Lord, service to the Lord look like? Rather than legalism, grace is the prevailing mindset. And genuine humility, genuine humility permeates everything. That I love. Rather than pride, there's humility. Rather than lifting up, boasting, arrogant, look at us. There's a look at the Lord, look at God, because it's by grace. Well, there's also a focus issue. And focus in the midst of a carnal or non-biblical ministry type situation versus grace, the focus becomes the work rather than Christ himself. The focus becomes the work, the goals, achieving designated markers. Frustration takes over. There's no peace as a result. 
I mean, if you're trying to hit a goal and you can't get there, or if you're trying to get to a particular standard, or you think this is what we ought to be doing and we're not doing it, or the reverse of that, here's the goal that we set and we made it. What happens? Pride sets in. If you don't make it, what happens? Oh, isn't it frustrating? Doggone it. Dallas didn't beat the Vikings. What's up with that? (laughs) I mean, they haven't won a preseason game in I don't know how many years. (sighs) Super Bowl. But that's what happens, right? Our focus becomes on the work. When we talk about it within a grace perspective, what happens? It's about the Lord. It's about what God wants. It's about how he leads. It's about where he's going, and it's about trusting him to take care of the results. And as a result, peace reigns. Peace reigns. Thirdly, relationships become secondary in an achieved or a secular mindset, carnal, fleshly mindset. Relationships become secondary versus being essential. Relationships are subservient to the work. Now, understand what I'm saying about this. People begin to be used. Have you ever felt used as a believer, as a part of a church? Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? We've got to get this done. We've got to do this. We've got to raise X amount of money, and so we're going to send you a card. And if you don't give that money, by golly, we're going to chase you down. Oh, I hate that. Really do. People get used. Because the work is the most important thing. The ends justify the means. The work becomes our identity. We, we, we kind of justify everything. You know, we, we say, well, look at how successful we are, and therefore we can justify how we've treated people along the way in order to get it done. Folks, that's not from the Lord. What's the opposite of that? Well, relationships of believers become essential. The one another's reflect the divinely empowered community. Genuine love is experienced. The work flows out of the relationships. There's always work. Nobody's saying that we won't have work. Nobody's saying we won't have effort. Nobody's saying we won't be passionate or zealous. Nobody's saying that God's calling us not to do anything. No, no, he says to engage in good deeds. Submit to the Lord, and when you begin to be changed by the Lord and transformed, I guarantee you God's going to get you to work. He's going to have you serving because that's his heart in his way and in his time. But when we put the work first, then essentials, the, the, the relationships become non-essential. The relationships become secondary. When we begin to put the Lord first, truly, then the relationships are essential, and the work will flow out of that. And genuine love begins to be experienced. And there's joy in it. Well, there's another aspect of this. Self-sufficiency versus his sufficiency. When we're looking at ourselves, when we make that oath and we say, this is what we're going to get done because we got a biblical mandate to do it. What happens? We become self-sufficient. Faith becomes something that it's really not. It's redefined. We take things into our own hands in order to accomplish whatever goal or purpose we believe is needed. And it becomes about what we can accomplish. We begin to measure it. We put a box around it and say, well, this is, this is what we can do. 
And we never get to experience the divine power of God as to what he can do. We demand of God to bless our work. You know, it's interesting. In achieved ministry, what happens is is people begin to pray in this way. God, you called us to this. You got to do this. And that's not prayer, folks. Prayer isn't saying, God, you've got to do anything. Prayer is saying, Lord, whatever you want to do, we'll receive it from you. Lord, even if you don't change the circumstance, it's okay. We love you. We worship you. We know that you're going to bring good out of it, even if it means taking me home. That's good. That's all good. See, we get in this mindset of we got this mandate. we got to get this done and the goal and the works and all this effort, and everything's got to happen here. And all of a sudden, we begin to use people. And that's, <laughs> do you think the world wants to come into that? I don't think so. We become self-sufficient rather than his sufficiency, rather than trusting the Lord, rather than walking by faith, rather than a journey of faith where we recognize we don't, we don't know the next steps. We're not really, sh- I don't know, Lord, I, shine that light. I, I, what? Oh, you wanted me to take a right-hand turn. Oh, praise God. Okay, Lord, this is great. We're on a journey here. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to get there? Lord, I know you'll give me the strength and the grace. Lord, I know you'll leave Hoffmantown Church as the body of believers because you're the, you're the head of that church. You're the shepherd. And if he says take a left-hand turn, all right, we all may struggle and fight and fuss and kind of, okay, here we go. And then we get to experience God and we go, Wow! And then we immediately forget about it, and we're on to the next challenge. And the God's, got, God's got to do it all over again. Oh, don't you remember that marker back there, how I met you in a special way? Come on, keep trusting me. And we begin to learn this is a journey of faith, that he's sufficient, not us. Self-sufficiency versus his sufficiency. I think it's interesting how leadership becomes defined. Leadership becomes performance-driven. Versus fellowship focused. Right? Leadership becomes personality focused. It becomes performance oriented. And, and the plan or the, the results are what drive us. Rather than recognizing in reality, not just verbally, that the Lord is the head, that we're here to follow him. We're here to walk with him. And so everything we do, we, we immediately throw it to the Lord. Oh, Lord, what, what would you have us do? Lord, what do you want us to do with that property? It's not our property. It's your property. Lord, what do you want us to do in here? Uh, whatever. We can have candles for all I care, as long as we're studying and praising God and in the word. I'm of no mind in it. Other than I just want to know, Lord, what do you have? What do you have? Fellowship. You know what's interesting is, is all of a sudden people become dry in, in an achieved and driven and self-focused uh, ministry. Vision. We lose sight of who we serve. And though we may be sincere and we think we're serving the Lord We take the Lord right out of the picture. We take him right out of the equation. We become dry in our walk with him. There's no love, right? Remember the the church of Ephesus? What does he say? You've left your first love. You're doing a lot of great things, but you've left your first love. Oh, it's dry. 
It, it doesn't have a vibrancy. The, the opposite is when we're following the Lord and it's a journey of faith and we're immediately praying and, and celebrating and, and when God in us and through us begins to, to show his love and reveal his love and, and we begin to walk in love for one another, his love for one another, and, and we begin to serve in genuine reality out of the outflow of God's heart empowered by the Lord in the midst of it by his grace, then, then what happens? There's a vibrancy. It's beautiful to watch. I can't tell you how awesome it was to come down and see the fellowship mall filled with people, all genuinely smiling and shaking hands and talking. And man, I love that. I think that's a reflection of Christ. And I think that's what people are looking for. They don't want religion. They want a relationship. The Lord empowers us to do that. People are secure in Christ because we recognize it's about him. And as a result, they're secure with one another. Well, lastly, my glory versus his glory, right? We become the focus when it's about us. We can be passionate about it. We can say we have biblical mandates in this. But if we're not following the Lord in it, if we're not being empowered by him, it becomes about our glory. Look at us rather than, oh. Look at our Lord. Look how awesome he is. What a privilege it is to say, Lord, here's my life. Use it in whatever way you choose. Major Ian Thomas, I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He, I believe, found a torchbearer's ministry. He's got a quote here. You've got to put your thinking caps on. I think we got it up here. Yeah. Thinking cap. Okay. Christ demonstrated the timeless truth that we can only live the Christian life through complete dependence on him by living the perfect life himself through complete dependence on his father. And as he reproduces his life in us, we can rest in his sufficiency, trusting that he will always be enough. Wow. Yes. Love it. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's a journey of faith. It's a journey of walking with God. It's a journey of learning to trust him. It's a journey that he's before us, that he's in me, that he will empower me, that he's sufficient no matter what it is that he allows in my life that's been filtered through his hands first, that he will bring good out of it, even though right now it may not feel that way. It's that he's going to light the way even when I can't see it. When I take that next step and I'm not sure exactly what it is that I'm stepping into, it's okay because God's ahead of me. And God will sustain me. He'll empower me. He'll provide. He'll take care of it. And we get to rest in that. In utter dependence upon him. Because we really are utterly dependent upon him. Do we know that? Are we walking in that? Are we resting in that? Is there joy in that? Is God producing his love in and through us? So that we can experience that? Are we wringing our hands? We're worried. I've been there. I've done it many, many, many times. Religion depends upon man's ability. Religion depends upon man's ability. True Christianity is a relationship by grace through faith in Christ, which depends on his ability. That's beautiful. Folks, are we walking in that? Because I want to tell you something. This world is starved for it. If you're against abortion, if you're for 
life. We're now being called terrorists. Wow. We're light in a very dark world. And praise God, he's the light. And he's able to empower us. He's able to sustain us. He's able to direct us and guide us. He's the all-sufficient one. The question is, do we trust him? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.